Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge Wurundjeri people as the traditional custodians of this land who have cared for and told stories on these lands since time immemorial. I acknowledge colonisation as an ongoing project. It always was, always is and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today... I'm very excited to be speaking with award-winning writer, historian, podcaster and author of new book all about Eve, Notes from a Transition, Eve Rees. Eve lives by the mantra to live the questions and I think that's everything that they do in this memoir. Eve was 30 when they understood that they are trans and this book really looks at how you learn to live in the world in a different gender, as a different gender. And it's a deeply personal exploration and one that I really hope is read by many. Later in the show, I'll be playing a story from All the Best, the radio documentary show created from a bunch of different community broadcasters across Australia. I'll be sharing a story about bushfires and birds. There are many stories of trans beginning. Always the stories matter. They tell us how to see, who to see, whether to revere or revile this thing we call trans. Stories make worlds, and the stories we tell about transness can be a matter of life or death. My life, so often I was tempted to throw away, was saved and remade by trans stories. That is an excerpt of All About Eve, uh, Notes from a Transition. It's the new book by award-winning writer, historian, podcaster, Dr. Eve Rees. Eve, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. It is, it's such a pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. I've really loved diving into your world um, through your book. You know, Eve, this book begins with a radio appearance, something that I hope is going to be quite different to the one that we're having now. Can you take me back to this experience? Yeah, so um, this radio appearance took place on Anzac Day in April 2019. And I was on radio that day in the capacity of my day job as a historian um, at La Trobe University. And I'd been asked to come on 774 and offer a bit of kind of historical commentary about the meaning of um, Anzac Day and its history. And I had a, you know, I was pretty excited to be there because this was probably the biggest radio gig I'd had to date. But it was a kind of weird day for me because um, the radio announcer, um, Raph Epstein, repeatedly called me by um, the name I'd been assigned at birth, Anne. And that just really, really jarred with me and it just made me feel wrong and 
awkward in my skin and like I just wanted to escape from the room. And the reason it felt really wrong was that I'd recently discovered that I was transgender and that I wasn't Anne and I wasn't a woman at all. I'm I'm Eve, the trans person as I am today. And that moment in April 2019 kind of happened at this strange time when I admitted to myself I was trans. I'd told some close friends and family, but I hadn't come out kind of publicly and officially and certainly not at a work um, setting. But that day, um, after the the dawn service broadcast finished at about 7.30, I was sort of wandering the streets of Melbourne thinking, what do I do now, feeling a bit sleep-deprived and kind of at a loose end. And I ended up seeing um, a really uh, transphobic headline um, from an interstate tabloid that was doing the rounds on Twitter. And I was just so infuriated by the kind of just, you know, blatantly incorrect transphobic nonsense that um, this paper was spouting that I kind of composed a tweet um, disagreeing with it, but at the same time kind of saying that I was trans and this is why I was so upset by it. And much to my surprise, uh, that tweet was kind of picked up or was retweeted by a few big names and it went quite viral. So, you know, the Anzac Day 2019 has, you know, become the day I accidentally outed myself (laughs) as trans to the entire internet. It was sort of one of those things that my sort of subconscious did without me really realising what I was doing. But, you know, in retrospect, it was really time. It's really quite the coming out story. Um, <laughs> you know, Eve, as your book goes on, you describe, I suppose, your experience of of becoming trans, of processing these kind of realisation, realisations, I should say, you know, you describe it as, as small whispers, as this kind of creeping in. Um, you know, at one point you state that for most trans people, it does take eight years from the kind of moment that you might sense a glimmer to the moment that you, you vocalise it. And, you know, you kind of describe this when you go on, um, when you're kind of figuring that out for yourself is every time I'm perceived as a woman, it's a small death. I'm interested, can you speak to those whispers and I suppose how they changed over time? Yeah, so I was not one of those trans people who knew who I was from earliest childhood, which I think is the stereotype we often have in our head, like a little kid saying, you know, no, I'm not a girl, I'm not going to wear that dress. That was not me at all. I was really good at being a girl. I was good at following the rules. But as I got into my late uh, 20s and, you know, I just kind of, you know, had a a few big life changes. I just finished a PhD. I'd moved cities. I just split up um, with my long-term partner. And I kind of more and more was finding myself really drawn to queer and especially trans culture. This kind of was all happening in the kind of mid to late 2000s or 2010s, sorry, a time we often think of as um, the trans tipping point, a period um, when all of a sudden, quite quickly, um, trans representation and, you know, representative real trans culture just kind of exploded within a few years. And we went from kind of having almost nothing to having Laverne Cox on the cover of Time magazine and TV shows like Transparent and lots of films as well. And I just kind of found myself inexplicably at the time drawn to all these texts. Um, And what I really realised kind of over a period of months and years 
was that I recognised myself in them, you know, that I'd lived my entire life with this sense of kind of unease in my body and the role of woman feeling like I didn't quite fit. And I'd never, as a, as a kid or a younger adult, had words or concepts mm. to kind of understand what that sense of wrongness in my own skin was. But when I started kind of consuming all this trans culture, I was like, oh, the person in this movie or this book is describing this feeling that they're calling gender dysphoria and that's exactly what it feels like to be in my body every day. So maybe I'm trans too. And, you know, I mean, that's a big and scary thing to confront, Um, you know, particularly sort of at the age of about 30, which I was at the time and had built a whole life on the idea that I was a woman. So it really took me quite a few years of these kind of moments, these kind of moments of beginning of kind of glimmers of seeing myself potentially as a trans person before I really got to the moment where I could say, no, this is this is real, this is a thing, this is who I am, and then to start telling people about it. Mm. I think you're speaking to something that I think this book does so well is having, you know, trans voices represent trans voices. You know, I mm. think uh, throughout this book you do um, talk about the problematic narratives that have um, been brought up throughout history about trans people I suppose I'm interested, you know, as a historian, you've trained as a historian, I think it's incredibly interesting and in, in terms of the way that I suppose you speak about your gender, I feel like this memoir has this kind of element of, of rigour to it that I think comes from being trained as a historian. I'm interested, how do you see that kind of aspect of your professional life shape your understanding of gender and the possibilities of, of what it could be? Oh, yeah, my training as a historian is so, it's so crucial to how I think and how I exist in the world. And so, of course, it's key to how I think about um, my gender. You know, I um, basically spent my entire adult life in universities. I'm a big, big old nerd. So, um, when I started thinking about my own my own identity as a trans person, it just made perfect sense to see it in in a bigger historical context, which is a, a kind of tricky thing because on the one hand, we know that trans people or gender non-conforming people have always been here. That, you know, even though conservatives or reactionaries like might, might like to say it's a new fad, there's so much evidence that so many um, cultures around the world, you know, Indigenous cultures but also, you know, European cultures have included kind of concepts and names for people who aren't men or women, who don't fit into that kind of neat binary box. So even the word trans is new, we know that there's always been, you know, gender divergent people, we might say. Um, so there is that very long history which really legitimises trans experience in many ways. But at the same time, it's, you know, this word trans is really new and it's a medical word that only really kind of developed in the kind of late 19th, early 20th century. And it's really hard to talk about trans history when the concepts we use to talk about trans people today didn't exist all that long ago. So how can we... Um, how can we talk about these people when um, they, we want them to be part of our lineage, part of our heritage, but they might not necessarily have seen themselves as trans because that word wasn't around at the time? Mm-hmm. So it's a really, um, you know, on the one hand, the his- history is so important for me in talking about it, 
But it's such a kind of fraught area and, you know, I'm so excited by really wonderful research um, into trans history that's happening in Australia at the moment. Noah Reisman, a historian at the Australian Catholic University, is leading a big project there and, you know, it's um, coming up with some really, really wonderful findings but there's still so much more to do. That's so exciting because, yeah, as you said, of course, trans people have always been here, whether, you know, they've identified in different ways or had different language to describe themselves. You know, it's not a new concept. One of your uh, chapters in the book um, speaks to, you know, I suppose what you're talking about, the um, pathologization of gender, Mm -hmm. you know, trans as this kind of diagnosable threshold. You know, once you have this kind of medical proof of gender dysphoria within the kind of medical idea of um, gender diversity it's something to fix which is incredibly problematic it's so damaging you know there's this real want and need for the medical system to you know put people in these categories and boxes that people feel like they can understand and you know obviously that's a that's an incredibly fraught relationship to have with um, a system that's meant to care for you I'm interested, I suppose, in your relationship with the kind of medical system and perhaps how that's changed as as a result of kind of receiving care that, you know, isn't really care. <laughs> um, yeah, great question. I mean, when I first came out as trans, I suppose it just made sense to go and see a psychologist who specialised in gender and to kind of provide, um, to gain some help to kind of understand what was going along and you know, in my mind, it was kind of seeking help to help navigate this new phase in my life. But yeah, what I quickly discovered once I entered that system is just what you've described, that it's about putting people in boxes, about about giving people labels, and it's about gatekeeping. It's about, you know, doctors policing the boundary of who gets to be trans or not, and therefore who gets access to life-saving gender affirmation treatments like hormone replacement therapy and surgery. You know, there's a very few clinics in Australia that offer hormones on an informed consent model, but they're really, really rare. And they're just, you know, have incredibly long waited lists. They're so Mm. flooded with demand. So in most cases, you still need to yeah, have, have a doctor diagnose you with gender dysphoria to get access to hormones. And this was a really, it was really humiliating and degrading experience in many ways. Um, I think, you know, I particularly found it challenging because the kind of the, the medical diagnostic framework that's used is so tethered around a really binary model of transness that's based on really kind of crude and outdated gender stereotypes. So someone like me who was assigned female and raised a girl The assumption is that if I'm trans, that I'm a trans man and that I must, Mm -hmm. you know, have wanted to play with trucks as a little boy and been a massive tomboy and, you know, then really butch as I grew up. And that wasn't true of my experience at all, but I was sort of kind of encouraged or required to kind of squash my complex story into that neat script so I could get the diagnosis I needed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in all those ways, it's it's really invalidating and takes the agency away from trans people. But, you know, by the same token, I did in a funny way find my diagnosis kind of validating because... Because my story was so different to the conventional transcript, I had a lot of imposter syndrome and a lot of doubt, Mm. thinking, you know, am I trans enough? Am I really real? And, you know, people in my life were very um, taken aback and shocked. They hadn't seen it coming, so they were kind of doubting it as well. 
So in a weird way, having a medical expert say to me, no, this is real, you are trans, um, you know, it deserves to be taken seriously, was quite validating. Mm. But I suppose I think, you know, what we need is not more diagnosis. We need to change the cultural script around what transness can be Mm. and to recognise that it's much more complicated than what we think it is. So people like me don't need to get that validation from a medical expert. We can give it to ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I think something that you explore, it's so astute in your book that, you know, within a medical system, there are a lot of medical professionals, if you do, they're like, okay, it's okay that you're gender diverse, but you still, they still kind of want people to be a trans man or a trans woman because they're still kind of adhering to these, you know, really ingrained ideas of what gender is and looks like. And I think um, something that feels so liberating is the way that you speak about trans as becoming trans as, you know, ongoing kind of transition of being of It just feels, you know, I think one of the like biggest joys that I I take away from reading this book is that, you know, gender liberation is for everybody and that's really exciting. And I think it can be really scary for some people. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think, you know, trans stories often get pigeonholed as just for trans people, but I really think trans people... You know, we live on the margins of gender and that means we kind of have the insights. You get into the margins and you get from the margins, sorry. And the way, um, you know, the way we kind of show what a kind of, you know, silly arbitrary game gender is by showing what we can, you know, we can choose not to follow these rules. We can cast them aside. I really strongly believe that it provides liberation or opens up space for liberation for everyone whether they're cisgender or trans because what we're trans people like me are essentially saying to everyone is these rules are arbitrary they're often really violent and punitive um suffocating and no one needs to follow them you know you can express your gender in however way you want and identify however way you want and that is really threatening to some people and it does get a lot of backlash because you know, we live in a patriarchal world and there's a lot of people very invested in um, the patriarchal vision of a gender binary where there's only two genders and everything masculine is superior to the feminine. But um, I'm really excited, I suppose, about the role that trans and gender diverse people can play in feminism moving forward in helping to liberate us all from patriarchy and the gender chains that can make us all really miserable. Mm. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Dr. Eve Rees. They are a historian, a writer, uh, a podcaster, and they've just written this extraordinary memoir called All About Eve, Notes from a Transition. Eve, I'd love to pick up on that point that you just raised about, um, I suppose, the the relationship between um, trans people pushing feminism forward. Of course, um, it's, you know, what is feminism without um, trans people? And I think, you know, a real central relationship in this book that I think you've explored is the, um, and I'm, I'm sure your life is the one with your your mum and, you know, your mum clearly brought you up um, as, a, as a staunch little feminist, which I love. I can very much relate to that, you know, but it did kind of seem to be like quite a journey to reckon with what it means to become or be a trans feminist when you've kind of been assigned female at birth. And I suppose in many ways it, it feels like that this book is for people like your mum to understand your gender and to understand kind of what it means to come up against this gender binary and rub against it in these very real ways day to day. Can you tell me, I suppose, a bit about who you were writing this for? 
Yeah, you've absolutely nailed it, Bethany. I was writing exactly for people like my mum. I've been asked that question a few times in other interviews and that's always the answer I give. Because I went on this extraordinary journey with my mum and we're still going on it. So she's, you know, she's a really... um, progressive, open-minded, empathetic woman. She was a huge um, women's lib kind of feminist back in the 70s when she was a uni student. And, you know, she really, as you said, raised me on those ideals. But she was also a woman who, you know, had not really been exposed to much queerness or any trans people, you know, before she, you know, realised I was trans. Um, in her life and had inherited or internalised a lot of the transphobia and the fear that still persists in our world. So she was quite anxious and fearful and even kind of hostile at the start because for me telling her that I, you know, identified as transmasculine, you know, my mum was someone who'd kind of been raised on this feminine that feminism that presented men almost as the enemy. And so for me to say that I wanted to masculinise myself felt to her almost like a kind of betrayal of that feminism, a rejection of of femininity and womanhood. But I suppose the journey we went on together was to, I suppose, to kind of think about what does feminism mean when we don't put women at the centre of it? Because, you know, we had women's liberation back in the 70s and still so often we talk about feminism as if it's just about women's issues, women, you know, protecting women from men or, you know, getting women to become the equal of men. And, you know, there's obvious reasons why that's the case. But the problem with that is it really excludes um, non-binary, gender-diverse people. And, you know, in some circumstances, it also excludes trans women. You know, there's a minority of so-called feminists, um, trans-exclusionary radical feminists or TERFs who deny that trans women are women. Now, it's not so hard to kind of put trans women back into the kind of feminism story because you can say, well, they're just women as well. Feminism is also for them. But the problem kind of arises with people like me, like people who were assigned female, raised as girls, raised as women, you know, have experienced a lot of, you know, the feminist issues that come from living in a female body. But but I'm not a woman. So is feminism for me? Like, do I belong in feminist spaces or, you know, women's spaces? It's so tricky. I think, you know, more and more um, feminist women's spaces are becoming aware of this issue. But what they're often doing is this kind of clumsy solution of just tacking on non-binary to the end? You know, so they'll say this is this is a poetry night for women and non-binary people, or or the Stella Writing Prize, for instance. You know, used to be just for women, and now it's for women and non-binary people. And that kind of sounds very nice and inclusive on the surface, but it's really not um, that great at all. I think. Because what it really does is it kind of implies that non-binary people are sort of a subcategory of women, like we're just women adjacent or kind of women light. And that just erases our transness um, and, you know, in ways that are, yeah, it's really quite problematic. And, I mean, what it also does is, you know, the idea of women and non-binary people slotting together. It's often based on the assumption that non-binary people are female assigned non-binary people like me who can still pass as a woman and it often really quite violently excludes male assigned non-binary people who are just as non-binary but have a much harder time kind of being permitted into women's spaces. Mm. 
So this is a really messy conversation. I have no easy answers, but I think the most important thing is we have the conversation and we everyone's involved and we think really carefully about what our feminism wants to achieve and who needs to be there for that to happen. And maybe sometimes it's cis men because cis men can also be feminists and also suffer under patriarchy. So they also need to be part of these conversations. I think you're so right and I think it's quite exciting kind of seeing the conversation moving forward and thinking about, you know, feminism is intersectional feminism and not just, as you said, it's not just for women and white women, I think in particular, Mm. which in many spaces it has been for a long time. But, yeah, thinking about, yeah, where who is marginalised, why are they marginalised, what oppressive structures um, are being put onto people and it's so much bigger than gender but it's also so pervasive. So, yeah, it's, it's a big, there's so many big questions there. I I think you've touched on something that's really important, which is um, as people are kind of trying to grapple with um, understandings of gender diversity and and different gender expressions that, as you said, there is this kind of clumsiness that we're like tripping over trying to kind of reach for the, the next thing. I'm I'm interested, I suppose, how can we move our language forward so that we can really witness people in their full expression of self? Ah, that's such a big question. (laughs) Just a small Um, one. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, the most important thing is just don't assume, you know, what words to apply to any given human in a human body. Because we, that's what we do assume all the time and that's what we've been taught to do. You know, we see a random stranger in a body on the street and our brains kind of unconsciously decide whether we think they're a man or a woman and the kind of language we should use to address them accordingly. And, you know, I still fall into that trap because we've all been socialised that way and it's a hard thing to stop. But, you know, one of the big insights, I think, of contemporary trans experience and trans politics is that we can't make those assumptions, that someone's, you know, how we perceive someone's body to look is actually a very different thing to their gender identity because gender identity is something that happens between the ears. Like it's it's an internal experience of yourself and that could often look quite different to how someone's body presents. Mm-hmm. So just, yeah, don't assume. And the way that can look in practice is to ask for people's pronouns, to say, you know, hi, nice to meet you. My name's Eve. I use they, them pronouns. What pronouns do you use? Or, you know, put your pronouns in your email signature or your um, your Twitter bio. And, you know, and just generally, I suppose, um, to use more inclusive language that acknowledges that there's not only men and women. So if you're hosting an event, instead of saying, you know, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, you can just say, Good evening, everyone. Good evening, folks. You know, there's so many examples of language you can use to signal that gender is a lot more complicated than two boxes. And, you know, and to stay curious and interested and open and not be defensive. Recognise we all make mistakes. We're all learning. But the important thing is to um, put in the effort and be open to new ideas. Absolutely. I think it's incredibly important. And, you know, another really astute observation that you made throughout your book is the the, the real um, role that the media have um, played and, and do play in perpetuating damaging stereotypes of trans people. Um, you know, journalists often see their role to be objective, but sometimes they can actually, um, I suppose, platform bigotry, which is not what we're after. But, you know, I think journalism or, you know, something like community radio is really about speaking truth to power 
power and, you know, really giving a kind of nuanced and complex understanding of, of who we are and how we live. I, I'm interested, I suppose, throughout writing this book um, and also just throughout your life, how you've potentially seen the role of, um, of media in, in terms of the ways in which it, it talks about and, and portrays trans-narrative change. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it has changed so quickly and it's kind of easy to forget that that was the case. You know, when when I was a kid or even a young adult, like there was just no discussion of trans people and, you know, whenever trans people were mentioned or depicted, it was very much as, as you know, as freaks, as weirdos on the outcasts of society um, who, you know, were murder victims and or sex workers and living you know, really marginalised, hard lives. Um, things have really, um, as I sort of mentioned earlier in the conversation, changed very quickly in the last decade in that there is, you know, much more um, awareness that trans people, you know, exist, we're real, we should be um, accepted um, and, and given platforms to kind of speak for ourselves. That's, you know, changed very, very quickly. However, that's been accompanied by a really big backlash, a cultural backlash, where um, uh, particularly um, in the UK there's been a very vocal kind of turf backlash to um, trans liberation and it's kind of picking up pace in Australia as well in ways that are quite worrying. And what really, I suppose, concerns me about this cultural moment is that very often media organisations and individual journalists, you know, who themselves might be quite sympathetic towards trans people, kind of end up platforming um, really quite hateful anti-trans turf voices. You know, like the classic example is the amount of airtime that's been given to J.K. Rowling about her aversion to trans people. And, I mean, of course, J.K. Rowling is a famous person, like her name is always going to sell newspapers or whatever, but it really does so much harm because she is not qualified to speak on trans issues. Like she is a writer. You know, she can speak about writing, she can publicise her books, but she is not trans herself and she has no medical or legal expertise in trans issues. So I just find it kind of mind-boggling that she is permitted to speak on these issues and to influence public opinion, um, you know, so often we see the media kind of falling back on this idea that transness is a debate and we need to give a platform to both sides. We need to let the trans people speak for themselves and then, like, J.K. Rowling and her ilk talk about why she doesn't like trans people. But that is so problematic because it's not a debate. This is the false framing of the issue. It's it's about whether trans people deserve to live live lives free from discrimination and hate and, you know, with all the rights and freedoms that other citizens enjoy. And, of course, we do. Mm. And if you believe that, there is no debate. This is just an issue of trans liberation. And we should just speak, the only people who should be getting the mic should be trans people themselves and, you know, people with relevant expertise in trans and health and medicine. Otherwise, everyone else can have their private opinions, but they should not be broadcast because I think it's just hate speech. Mm. 
Yeah, I'm getting terrible flashbacks to the plebiscite, which again was another debate uh, about people's identity, which is so deeply problematic. Um, Eve, I would love to, before I let you go, ask you something which is a bit more joyous than perhaps what we've been talking about. (laughs) Um, You know, towards the end of the book, you mentioned this, you know, special interspecies relationships that many queer and trans people have. Uh, You know, you quote Eileen Miles from her very bizarre and wonderful memoir, The Afterglow, um, which is a dog memoir if you haven't read it Um, and you know you speak about perhaps this dissolving of binaries between you know human and animal and you specifically with your cats Delphi and Arabella um, you say that together um, all us in between things we gain courage to stride forward together can you speak a little bit about your relationship with your cats and perhaps how they've you know changed your thinking around gender and self or maybe that it just I don't know it doesn't matter when you're with your cats uh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, well, to be perfectly honest, I'm a bit cross with Arabella this morning because she woke me up very early before 6 a.m. And early. then and then she um, had the cheek to then like snooze on my bed all morning while I was working in this horribly sleep-deprived state. <laughs> so <laughs> we're not good friends right now. But generally, yeah, these, um, as you say, my cats have been so... So crucial to me in thinking about, yeah, binaries and love and intimacy. Um, I, you know, I wrote this book last year during lockdown and I live alone. So, um, you know, for the 230-plus days we all in um, Nam have spent in lockdown, like my two cats have been my closest human companions. And, I mean, on one level that could sound a bit, you know, sad and pathetic, but it's actually been beautiful and they have taught me so much about what it means to love and be loved and to be loved outside of gender. I think, you know, when we went into lockdown first the first time at the beginning of last year, you know, like everyone, I was stressed and anxious about the pandemic. But it was also kind of a relief because, you know, out in the world when I'm being gendered by other humans every day, I'm constantly being misgendered. I'm constantly feeling stressed about my how my body is being perceived and what people are thinking of me and what box they're putting me in. And it was actually just so nice. And it is still so nice just to like let that all go and just be a body, just be a person and be loved by these gorgeous little cats who don't, you know, don't give a rat's ass whether I'm a man or a woman. They don't even care. They don't even register this thing called gender. Well, that's what I think anyway. And they just, you know, they just want me to give them food and pats basically. Mm. And it really, I suppose, yeah, opened my eyes into thinking that, you know, human relationships are tricky, but there are other forms of relationships and love and those those relationships between humans and animals can teach us things about how human-to-human relationships could be better Mm. and that they're not any, those interspecies relationships are not any lesser than human-to-human relationships. Um, You know, as anyone who has a cat will tell you, cats have amazing boundaries. They teach you so much (laughs) about having healthy boundaries. Um, So, yeah, they've, um, my cats have been one of the great joys of the last few years and, yeah, they really deserved a special place in my book because they're a big part of my life. I, lo- I loved that and I loved reading about them and I think you're totally right. At the end of the day, I think all people want is, is uh, you know, pats and, and food anyway. So I feel like <laughs> well, we can exactly. learn a lot from We just them. make things too complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dr Eve Rees, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. 
Uh, Thank you so much for having me and for your wonderful questions. My absolute pleasure. We've been talking about all about Eve. It is Notes from a Transition. It is out now through Alan and Unwin. You are listening to Triple R. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. This next story comes from All the Best. It's a show where emerging Australian storytellers learn how to make audio stories. It's a weekly podcast and community radio show produced at FBI Radio in Sydney in association with Sin Media and Triple R here in Nam. This next story comes from one of their latest episodes, Home to Heal. When the bushfires in 2020 hit her home, Alice and Sarah had to evacuate three times over six weeks through still-burning forests and bypassing melting roads. She shares her story of walking through the smokes, ashes and tears. You're listening to Triple R. Um, What kind of bird? I mean, at the moment, there's a lot of rainbow lorikeets. Sometimes on a very special occasion, the black cockatoos. But actually, we saw them more just after the fire hit Maria. They all came into town. It was so spooky because they're huge. And I guess they were all burnt out. My name's Alice Ansara and I live in Maria, which is a pretty small town on the far south coast of the east coast of Australia. So many of the bushfires we've had in Australia, the catastrophic bushfires, have been one day. This just went on and on and on. Alice, Project Robert, you should evacuate from Maruya now. Uh, we're just heading down to Maruya to fight this fire. You need to evacuate now. I think Esther, the two-year-old, was having a nap, grabbed Mavis, the four-year-old. I tried to be really calm, you know, with them, like not be unrealistic or pretend that there weren't bushfires around us. But, you know, they're so little. Like, I just tried to be calm and gentle and approachable all the time with them. So I was like, okay, darlings, I think there's a fire coming, a big fire. And so now it's time for us to go get your little bag quickly. I need you to put on your little outfit because I'd gotten outfits ready for them. So wool and cotton, things that weren't going to (laughs) burn to their skin if we got caught in the fire. Put on your little fire outfits and let's hop in the car and go somewhere else. Like the whole sky was this Armageddon orange. Everything was orange. Everything was covered in smoke. So it was a very kind of end of the world feeling. For the first time, you know, I saw the forests that had been burnt. We just drove for kilometres and kilometres through burnt bush. And it was... Ah... was like it had snowed. Everything was white with ash. It was beautiful. And the trees were birch trees in winter or something, kind of sticks of black. And we just went past 
property after property that was burnt. All that was remaining was, a, you know, the roof that was flattened on the ground. I remember my daughter just said to me, why are all the trees on fire? You know, they were still burning in the trees. And this trip that, you know, normally takes two hours, 40 minutes to my mum's in Wollongong took us about 16 hours. Parts of the Princess Highway were literally burning and we couldn't get through and we'd have to wait. And the amazing people who were clearing the roads were just working as hard as they could to get everybody out. And at one point at Burrill Lake, we could get no further. It was dusk and I'd just packed all the chickpeas, but really hadn't packed any other food. So we didn't really have food. The kids were, you know, kind of ratty and we were anxious and we lay down in a park and somebody came up to us and said, oh, you've got kids do you want to come and stay at our house until the road's clear? Which was beautiful. I mean, and there were acts of generosity like this everywhere. Everybody tried to have a sleep and I just stayed awake the whole night. As soon as I saw that there was movement on the roads, I think it was at about four o'clock in the morning, I just got everybody up and moving on the road again. We eventually arrived in Wollongong and it was like we'd come out of a war zone into a country of peace, and we were devastated. We were shell-shocked. It was like people couldn't understand what we had come from, and this is just in Wollongong. The fire front came past our place. The trees were on fire, and my partner spent eight, ten hours just putting out spot fires nonstop. So it didn't burn our house. But then the next day, and probably for about the next week, these black cockatoos just came in from the mountains, which was all burned. The trees at our boundary fence, they were just tearing big strips of the burnt tree off. And it would have still been hot. Yeah, I'm sorry to say I, I don't know what they were doing, but I remember the sound of them. Oh, I feel really emotional, sorry. The devastation on, on the land and on the animals, on all the animals, was like something that is so hard still to come to terms with. And seeing all of those black cockatoos in a place where you would not normally see them, doing I don't know what, you know, trying to find food or just survive was so hard. And I think because everybody was just trying to survive themselves... I felt this real sense of impotence and, like, I personally had let down, you know, wildlife and that, you know, we as a species of humans have let down all the other species in such a horrific way. I think that's why I feel, that's why I felt so sad. You're listening to Triple R. That was called Then Came the Birds by Sarah Mashman. You can hear more of Alice's story in the CBAA series from The Embers. It was also the winner of the 2021 Hearsay Prize Create Provoke Award. 
If you do want to get involved in All the Best and learn how to make your own radio stories, they are currently accepting spring pitches. You can head over to allthebestradio.com to find out more. It's almost time for me to get on out of here. That is it for me today. You have been listening to The Glass House. My name is Beth AQ. I do want to say a massive thank you to Dr. Eve Rees for speaking with me all about their book, all about Eve, Notes from a Transition. It is out now through Alan and Unwin. I'll catch you next week. But keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website 